my name's John Dennis. It's Wednesday the 24th of March. Today, a new blow to Britain's relations with Israel as the UK expels an Israeli diplomat over the use of forged UK passports in the assassination of a Hamas official. The fact that this was done by a country which is a friend with significant diplomatic, cultural, business and personal ties to the UK only adds insult to injury. Also today, the Chancellor Alistair Darling delivers Labour's last budget before the general election. Plus... It's about censorship, it's about hacking, it's about privacy, it's about all kinds of issues here. And Google, in a sense, is acting like a sovereign state over the internet. China has reacted angrily to Google's decision to shift its operations to Hong Kong. Columnist Jeff Jarvis, author of a book on Google and a firm advocate of digital freedom, gives his view. And the philosopher Alain de Botton on his latest book, A Travelogue, The Pleasures and Sorrows of Work. If you're growing up in the UK today, you're growing up with what you could call a middle-class view of work. That is that work isn't just about money, it's about fulfilment. First, our top story. Britain has expelled an Israeli diplomat over the use of forged UK passports by the killers of a senior Hamas official. The Foreign Secretary, David Miliband, said Israel's behaviour had been intolerable. We have concluded that there are compelling reasons to believe that Israel was responsible for the misuse of the British passports. The government takes this matter extremely seriously. It presents a hazard for the safety of British nationals in the region. It also represents a profound disregard for the sovereignty of the United Kingdom. The fact that this was done by a country which is a friend with significant diplomatic, cultural, business and personal ties to the UK only adds insult to injury. No country or government could stand by in such a situation. Julian Borger is our diplomatic editor. He said this was strong action from the Foreign Secretary. Yes, absolutely. Uh, pretty much a, a direct accusation that the Israeli state was responsible for the uh, doctoring of uh, British passports, the expulsion of an Israeli diplomat, and that's a very rare thing to uh, expel a diplomat from a friendly country. Last time it happened was in, with Israel in the late 1980s. And a warning to Britons that when they travel to Israel or dealing with Israeli officials to be careful about handing over their, their passports and only do so if absolutely necessary. So, yeah, a strong reaction. What Britain hasn't done is said that Israel was behind the assassination of the Hamas official in Dubai. No, but of course it's as good as saying that. Uh, if you're saying that uh, Israel was behind the uh, forging of the documents that were used by the assassination squad, that's as close as you can without actually saying it. And the reason they aren't saying it is because that is the uh, jurisdiction of the Dubai authorities, the, the Emirates authorities. And so they are just, con for that diplomatic reason, confining their uh, investigation to the issue of passports alone, the, the purely British interest in this. How did British investigators go about getting evidence that Israel was behind this? Basically, they talked to the dual British-Israeli citizens who were involved, whose identities were stolen. And what they did is they figured out the common thread uniting them was at some point in the recent past, they'd handed over their passports, uh, either to airline officials or to uh, border officials or to Israeli officials of one sort or another. Uh, and the, this was the one common factor 
and they admit that this is not evidence that will stand up in court, but it's strong circumstantial evidence that the Israeli state was involved. What do you make of the timing of yesterday's announcement? Just as Benjamin Netanyahu was meeting Barack Obama with Israel and the United States, relations between the two countries already particularly strained. Well, the Foreign Office were adamant that that was, did not determine the timing. The timing was dictated by the tempo of the uh, soccer report, the uh, Serious Organised Crime Agency report, uh, and it wasn't to do with the, the broader politics. Nevertheless, clearly it is going to uh, weaken and be a problem for Netanyahu in Washington. Uh, he's been accused by a Western government, or his government has been accused by uh, another Western government, of being uh, involved in a fairly you know, heinous crime. And where does all this leave relations between Britain and Israel? Uh, at a pretty low point. They've been through these kind of eruptions before, particularly in the late 80s, uh, when there were a number of Mossad operations that uh, infuriated the Thatcher government. She ended up closing down the, the Mossad base in, in London in, uh, in the late 80s. Uh, after a, a string of these. Uh, so it's been worse, but uh, not a lot worse than it is now. Julian Borger, and there's full coverage today at guardian.co.uk slash Israel. £11 billion worth of savings in a budget for growth. That's what the Chancellor Alistair Darling will be announcing today in Labour's last budget before the general election. Heather Stewart is the Observer's economics editor. I put it to her that an election or no election, Alistair Darling hasn't got much cash to throw at the voters. Well, he certainly hasn't, but um, it is true to say that the deficit, which we've all been we've been bandying this 178 billion pound figure around since December, when he estimated that's how big his shortfall was going to be for this year. Actually, it's probably going to be a wee bit smaller. He's he's got more than he thought from the the bonus tax on the city. Unemployment's been a little bit lower than expected, so he he may be able to tell us he's got a slightly smaller deficit than he thought, perhaps up to £10 billion smaller. And that does make the leeway for a a, a few cheap giveaways. We're told that he wants to make um, £11 billion worth of efficiency savings. Do we know how he's going to do that? Well, this is is a a trick that the government has pulled over and over again to talk about efficiency savings. And the claim is always that they can find the money um, through saving money on backroom services, things like human resources and finance and these kinds of things, without affecting frontline services. But there have been several rounds of this now, and certainly £5 billion worth of it was announced in the pre-budget report. So um, you have to be increasingly sceptical, I think, about how much of this you can do with you know genuinely without touching the front line and there's going to be a crackdown on tax evasion another way of saving some money Yes, this is um, an interesting political point, really. I mean, it, we've had several crackdowns on tax evasion, but of course, with the uh, the Lord Ashcroft scandal fresh in everybody's minds, it's quite a nice opportunity for uh, you know Labour to give anyone who's hiding their money offshore as, as hard a time as they possibly can, and re- remind everybody that we might associate the uh, the Conservatives with these kinds of practices. And the budget is a springboard for Labour's election campaign. How will Alistair Darling attempt to mark out the difference between Labour and the Tories with this budget? 
Well, I think he wants to talk about what happens beyond the recession because we're, we're, we're just out of recession, although the economy is still very fragile. And I think he wants to give us the sense that Labour has a longer term plan for rebuilding the economy. It's, he's going to talk about creating low carbon jobs, for example, and, you know, rebalancing the economy towards manufacturing, which the government wants to kind of help more actively than it has in recent years. And, and give us a sense that, well, the Tories are, are very much focused on cutting the deficit. That's really the, the heart of their economic policy. Labour is thinking a little bit more long term about what kind of economy we might want to have in, in two, three, five or ten years time. Heather Stewart and there's full coverage of the budget at guardian.co.uk slash budget, including later today a special budget podcast presented by Aditya Chakraborty and Tom Clark. You can listen to highlights from the budget and analysis from the Guardian's expert panel of commentators and that podcast will replace tomorrow's edition of Guardian Daily. That's at guardian.co.uk slash audio later today. My name's John Dennis. Still to come on Guardian Daily, Alain de Botton on the pleasures and sorrows of work. But first... Internet freedom campaigners have welcomed Google's decision to shift its operations in China to Hong Kong, which, although part of China, operates under different laws. And it follows a two-month standoff between the search engine and Beijing over web censorship. Jeff Jarvis writes a new media column for The Guardian. He's also the author of the acclaimed book, What Would Google Do? I'm delighted that someone is standing up for free speech on the internet, and I think it's an important move. So I'm fully supportive of Google's move, and uh, the Chinese will do what the Chinese will do. Google made a mistake in the first place, though, didn't they, by um, censoring content in China? I think they did. Google went against its own principles. Uh, They said that they would always re-examine that, and indeed they did. What's, what's going to be the impact of this on Google's business? The impact on business in the short term is minor, uh, though they don't report out their Chinese numbers. I've seen you know, approximately $100 million a quarter for a $26 billion company. That's not much. Obviously, there's some concern about leaving this huge market, but it's not just about China. This is also about Google defending the internet and defending our rights and our freedoms around. And so it's about censorship. It's about hacking. It's about privacy. It's about all kinds of issues here. And Google, in a sense, is acting like a sovereign state over the internet. To what extent, though, um, did Google weaken its moral authority uh, by four years of self-censorship in China? I think it did not help them. Uh, When I wrote my book about Google, I criticized Google for its opaqueness about its Uh, ad splits, though it promises to be more transparent now. I criticized them over China. They fixed that. Uh, We can change our erring ways. China has said that Google has violated written agreements um, by withdrawing to Hong Kong. Will Google be worried now um, about how the Chinese authorities might react to this? Uh, Who knows what will happen, because Google also has other business operations and technology operations in China, which are an opportunity for Chinese engineers. Uh, But I think it's going to be a fight one way or the other, and the Chinese are digging in their heels. I don't mean to um, compare this to the actual repression that occurred in South Africa during apartheid, but I think there is a parallel here insofar as companies deciding at some point not to support a repressive regime. And so at some point, the South Africans didn't have Coca-Cola, and the Chinese won't have Google, but it is a necessary step, I think, to um, change what's happening in China. If Google didn't do this, it would never change. 
Opponents of um, sanctions uh, against South Africa during the apartheid years used to argue, uh, Jeff, that um, companies not doing business there would leave ordinary South Africans worse off. So do, do you think that Google's withdrawal leaves Chinese web, web users, at least in the, in the short term, worse off? Yes, a bit. But at some point, we also need to give the Chinese people the reason to uh, have this fight out with their own government. Um, that was the argument for Google to be in there, was better to have a hampered internet than no internet at all. Well, they already have the hampered internet. Uh, Google also hampered it, so they didn't have the full internet. They're really no worse off in that sense with Baidu, which is going to follow the government's rules. Do you think that eventually China will have to admit defeat in its attempts to censor the internet? I think that every tyranny will be brought down at some level by the internet. But then I'm an optimist. But I think that uh, it becomes impossible for a government to restrict the flow of information and communication for its citizens, whether that's in China or Iran. The one exception to that right now is North Korea, where, of course, they don't have Internet access. Alain de Botton, author of The Architecture of Happiness and Status Anxiety, describes his latest book as a hymn to the intelligence, peculiarity, beauty and horror of the modern workplace. In The Pleasures and Sorrows of Work, he asks, when does a job feel meaningful? I asked him how he'd answer that question. I think the great hope with work is that you'll be able to take something that's special in you, some quality you have, some way of looking at the world, something you can do, and you'll be able to bring it out of yourself and make something out of it, be it a product, a service, an object, a bowl, an office, whatever it is, and that you'll be able to sell it to other people and you'll be able to be recognised for it and gain money for it. That sounds simple, but it's in fact incredibly difficult. That is the sort of lifetime search. And many of us simply just don't get there. We, we, we don't manage to get that precious bit out of ourselves and, and, and onto the marketplace. Now, your background is in philosophy, uh, but, but this latest book doesn't read like, it's not a traditional philosophical text, is it? Um, how did you, why did you decide to present you know, your exploration of work in this way? Um, it's really a kind of travel log. And um, the reason I did it like that is I think that one of the problems with work is that most of us know our own working areas very, very well. But once you step outside of them, we don't know what other people's offices are like, factories are like, we don't know where stuff comes from, etc. And it felt important to me to put in a lot of local colour to make this a descriptive book, not just an analytical book. There are lots of economics books that will tell you the theory of, you know, trade flows, etc. This is not one of these books. This is a book about uh, how work feels, what it looks like, what it smells like. How far are people's attitudes towards their work determined by the culture in which they live in? I think hugely. Um, I mean, broadly speaking, um, if you're growing up in the UK today, you're growing up with what you could call a middle class view of work. That is that work isn't just about money. It's about fulfillment. This is the message of the education system, that uh, everybody's got a chance to make something of themselves and to find something that they are inspired to do and will do for love rather than just for kind of slavish need. The great proportion of the UK working population doesn't actually ever get there. And so that's why there's a kind of slight incoherence going on, slight cruel, sentimental incoherence in the message that's been given out to young people. But that's nevertheless, I think, the, the background most people are coming from. 
Why do you say in the book that something is awry with a job title such as brand supervision coordinator, sweet biscuits? This is at the McVitie's factory that you visited. I think one of the features of meeting people nowadays, when you say what do you do, people will often tell you a job that you can't quite understand. It will take sort of six follow-up questions before you begin to get a sense of what they're doing if they're not in an industry that you know well. And I think the reason for that is that most jobs are incredibly specialised. The, the, the day when people used to have jobs like in children's books, you know, the baker, the butcher, the brick layer etc these days are long gone most people are involved in some much smaller cog of the economy the modern economy rewards specialists um, the more specialized your workforce the more your productivity will increase um, the workforce doesn't need someone who you know does a bit of latin in the morning goes fishing in the afternoon and you know picks up a, a saw and a, a scalpel in the evening <laughs> you know you, we just we need specialists economically that's brilliant from a personal point of view it's it's quite challenging because i think all of us have got different parts of our personality that we like to express through our work and the need to be very, very specialised really challenges that and leads many, many people to think there are so many more bits of me that I'm not able to sort of express through my work. Alain de Botton and The Pleasures and Sorrows of Work by Alain de Botton is published by Hamish Hamilton. You can listen to a longer version of that interview today at guardian.co.uk slash books. Guardian Daily was produced today by Ben Green and Phil Maynard. My name's John Dennis. Thank you for listening.